Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're glad you're here today, and if you would please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Acts in chapter number two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn to page 92 in the back part, and you would be at Acts chapter 2. We're giving the second message in a series that we've entitled Seeds, uh, the Acts of Jesus through the church, and the principle of planting and scattering and, and growing. And as I was getting ready to do this message, I was wrestling with the title. What was I going to call this message. I, I considered it calling it planting day or the church's first birthday or the beginning because that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. It's the beginning of the church. It's the birth of the church. I considered calling it kickoff. I mean, it's fall season. Uh, this is the OU Texas weekend. I, I considered it calling it blast off or take off because the church begins with a bang in chapter 2 of Acts. I considered calling it the unveiling, but then that sounded a lot like something Apple would do when they're bringing out a new product. I considered using the word inauguration, could call it the inauguration, but then that seems to be in our culture a word that is limited to presidents. Uh, Then I thought about the idea of calling it the inception. And then that made me think about the 2010 DiCaprio movie, and I didn't want people thinking about the DiCaprio movie when we're talking about Acts 2. I considered calling it the the debut, if I can get it out of my mouth, Um, but then that's what movies do, and we've already eliminated the inception with DiCaprio. So I settled on calling this the promise fulfilled, which is a great summary of what we see in Acts chapter 2. If you were with us when we did the promo on this particular series, we pointed out then that Jesus made a startling statement to his disciples. He said to them, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now just put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. We have the Son of God in the flesh, the Messiah, who is hanging out with us and teaching us, and you're telling us it's to our advantage that you go away? What could he mean by that? It made no sense to them. But Jesus went on to tell them some other things. He said, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. And he said, the Holy Spirit is with you now, but in that time, he will be in you, and he'll be in you forever. Jesus also told them that in that day that was coming, he said, you will be in me, and I will be in you. We saw last time in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to realize, disciples, that the presence and the power of God through the Holy Spirit is going to be available to you 24 hours of every day, and it will be available to everyone who believes in me. We also saw last time in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, he said, this is going to happen not many days from now. 
And approximately 10 days later, uh, we see this actually unfolding for us in Acts chapter 2. We see the promise fulfilled. We see the church being started. We see the new tool that God wants to use to reach the world being planted. And what happens in Acts chapter 2 is one of the most momentous events in all of human history. And we get to spend a little bit of time looking at it today. Now, we're not going to get through chapter 2 today. We'll be concluding that, Lord willing, next week. But we are going to look at the first part of the chapter, and our plan is to examine four different things. Number one, we're going to look at the timing of the promise fulfilled in verse 1. Then we're going to look at the evidence of the promise fulfilled in verses 2 to 4. Then we're going to look at the reactions of the fulfillment of this promise in verses 5 to 13. And then we're going to look briefly at Peter's clarification of what's going on as the promise is fulfilled. We see that in verses 14 to 21. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by looking at the timing of the promise fulfilled. And we see that in verse 1. And just follow along as I read verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, before we look a little more deeply into the timing of this, I want to make an important observation. And I think Chuck Chuck Swindoll does a great job of articulating this observation. Here's what he writes. He says, Gathered together was a group of 120 people. Of that group, we know a few by name as well as by their track records. Peter, who had denied Christ, was there. John and his brother James, who had wanted special seats in the kingdom, were there too. Andrew, Philip, Thomas the doubter were present, as well as Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, or we could translate it, Simon the insurrectionist or Simon the terrorist, and Bartholomew and James and Judas the son of James. Also among them were Jesus' brothers who had earlier scoffed at him and even thought that Jesus was insane. All in all, he writes, it was a bunch of failing, often faithless people. No halos hovered over anyone in this list. And yet these were the ones that God planned to empower with his Holy Spirit. God never requires perfection or impressive resumes from those he wants to use. In fact, he often chooses unlikely face-in-the-dust people, people just like us. So, when the day of Pentecost had come, Pentecost was an event that occurred on the 50th day after Passover. Thus, it's called Pentecost. And if you go back and and understand what was happening in Jesus' day and the day of the disciples is that there were three great pilgrim feasts that occurred in Israel. By a pilgrim feast, we meant which people would come from all surrounding areas. Jews would return to Jerusalem for the feast. One of those was Passover, One of those was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Tents, as it sometimes is called. And the third pilgrim feast was that of Pentecost. You know, we live in a city of a little more than 100,000 people. 
Jerusalem's population was normally about half that 50,000. But Josephus, the historian, tells us that when there was a pilgrim feast happening, that as much as one million people would be residing inside the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine, even in our town, suddenly there's one million people hanging out. And Pentecost was a pilgrim feast that celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And here's part of what would happen at Pentecost. In the temple services, they would spend some time commemorating at Pentecost the giving of the law to Moses, which happened 14 centuries before. And part of what they would do in their temple services is they would have as one of their central readings, a reading from Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. And part of what happened in that section is we, we learn in chapter 19 that the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire. And that was one of the readings they would have at this time. The last time, by the way, in Israel's history in which fire from heaven had come was six centuries before when the temple of Solomon was dedicated and God sent fire down to consume the sacrifices. So all this is happening in this context of Pentecost, this pilgrim feast. And it says in verse 1 that they were all gathered together in one place. Now, what was the one place? Well, we don't really know for sure. We know that we left them in the upper room in chapter 1, and it could be that they're in this upper room still. But we do know that they're somewhere near the temple area because as these events begin to unfold, there's a huge commotion. There's thousands of people who start to gather around the area, this place where these events happen. That leads us to the second thing we want to look at, and that is the evidence of the promise fulfilled. And we see that in verses 2 to 4. Follow along as I read. Verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it the noise filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So what's happening here? Well, suddenly, from out of heaven, there came a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now, it doesn't say there was a violent wind, but there was a sound like there was a violent wind. You know, in Oklahoma, when we have a tornado, there's a certain roar, and it must have been that kind of a roar. There was this roar of a sound that sounded like a violent wind. And by the way, wind in Scripture, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And wind is also an expression of an invisible power because we can see the effects of the wind, but we really don't know where the power source of it would be found. So you had this sound of this violent wind, and then in verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they were resting on each one of them. There were tongues that were sort of like fire, not exactly fire, but like fire. And fire is another symbol of the presence of deity. You remember back in the Old Testament about the burning bush. It's a symbol of the presence of deity. And even when fire came down and the giving of the law, 
on Mount Sinai. It's, it's a symbol of the presence of deity. So what's going on here? Well, there seems to be some sort of a supernatural signature of God's presence that is on each one of them. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance, as the Spirit was giving them ability. So let's look at the third thing. Let's look at the reactions to this promise that is fulfilled. And what we're going to do is just begin to look at the reactions. Then I want to take a little bit of a detour for a few moments. Then we're going to come back to the reactions. But look at what it says beginning in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, the disciples, speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now, it's important that we understand the audience that is witness to these events. They are, according to verse 5, Jews in Jerusalem. Now, some of them were Jews who actually resided and lived in Jerusalem. And we know from what happens here that many of them were people who had been victims of the diaspora, the dispersion that went on historically in Israel. Remember when the Assyrian kingdom came in, many of the people from Israel were dispersed out around. They no longer lived in Israel. Same thing happened when the Babylonian Empire came in and people were dispersed. They call that the, the, the uh, diaspora. And so they were dispersed out and they would grow up and be raised in various localities, wherever they may be, and each of those localities had their own language. And what happened then is what happens today because we have people who grew up in certain parts of the world, but they returned to Israel. And that's what happened in that day. You had people who would grow up over here and they were born in this area and this culture and learned this language, but then they would move back to Israel. So we have these Jews in Jerusalem. Some of them lived in Jerusalem and some of them, no doubt, were individuals who had traveled to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast of Pentecost. But they're the audience, the witnesses to all of this event. And you'll notice it says there in verse 5, they were devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, again, just think about all these people. Some of them lived in, in Jerusalem. Some of them came in for the feast, and they had been in the temple services. Remember, what part of the temple services did is they commemorated Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the law, and part of that was the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire. And, and it's even possible that when they were in the, the services for Pentecost, that there could have been a reference back to 600 years before and the dedication of Solomon's temple when fire came down from heaven. Some of that stuff could have been fresh in their thinking from the temple services as these events unfold. And so what happens is there's this loud noise and it attracts everybody's attention. And so everybody comes running and we're going to learn later there's thousands of people involved here. And they see these tongues that are like fire 
basically on each one of the disciples. And notice their response to all this. When this sound occurred, verse 6, the crowd came together and they were bewildered. They were bumfuzzled. They were perplexed. They couldn't figure out what was happening. They were bewildered. Why? Because each one of them, these disciples, was each one of the people was hearing them, the disciples, speaking in their own language. Each Jew with these varying native language, languages was hearing the disciples speak to them. And they had these tongues that were like fire resting over them. And they heard them speak their own language. Now, it's important for us to pull back for a moment and realize, you know, this was before the days in which you could take the languages of the world in school. Well, you might be able to go to the junior college or to college or even maybe in high school and take the languages of the world. This was before there was Rosetta Stone. So it's very startling for these things to happen. In fact, it's interesting that in verses 9 to 11, we have all these places mentioned, and at least 15 to 16 different languages are cited. And these places, if you track them to modern times, they would include places in modern Iran, modern Turkey, and Egypt, in Crete, and in Rome. And if you kind of map it all out, and if you think of the Mediterranean Sea, and on on the far east you had Israel, it basically rings the Mediterranean Sea because that's where the diaspora had thrown people. And they came from all these various areas. Verse 6 says they were bewildered. In verse 7, it says they were amazed. He grabs another word to describe this. Literally, this word means to be beside oneself. And then a third verb Uh, comes up. They were not only amazed, they were astonished. They were stunned by these events. And part of the fact that they were stunned is that they're asking this question, why why are we experiencing this? I mean, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? So what's the significance of that? Well, the Galileans were viewed as the country folks. They were the people with the drawls, y'all. Uh, They were generally viewed as the uneducated bumpkins out in the country, and this is the city of Jerusalem. We're sophisticated, metropolitan here. How can these people be speaking all these languages? And look at verse 8. It's really the key thought that they were wrestling with. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. We don't get it. Now, I want to stop there and take a little detour for a moment, and it's a detour because I want to look more carefully at the practice of speaking in tongues. You know, speaking in tongues was a controversial issue in New Testament times, and speaking in tongues can be a controversial issue issue at times today. And so what we want to do is make some observations about speaking in tongues. We're going to use the scriptures to direct us, not what we may have heard somewhere or even what we maybe have experienced, but what does the Bible have to say about this? One thing we know about speaking in tongues is that speaking in tongues involves speaking known foreign languages. Look at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with 
other tongues or different tongues. Now, the word that's translated tongues there in Greek is a word that can only mean one of two things. It can mean the tongue, the the organ that's jammed into your mouth between your teeth, or the other meaning of the word is language. So when he says they were speaking with other tongues, the, the preferred definition or really the translation would be they were speaking with other languages. Look at verse 6. They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. A different word in Greek, it's the word dialectos. We get the word in English dialect from it. Now, here's what's so important, men and women. This is the only place in Acts chapter 2 in the entire New Testament where the nature of tongues is described in detail. It's the only place. doesn't mean it's not talked about elsewhere. It occurs two other times in the book of Acts. It also occurs in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapters 12 to 14. But this is the only place where the nature of tongues is described in detail. So what I want to share is a biblical definition of what tongues is, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues, we could say this, the supernatural ability to speak a known language without having learned it. Where did I get that from? Right here. The supernatural ability to speak a known language without having learned it. And if anybody at any time, whether it was then or now or next week, wants to practice speaking in tongues, we just need to be biblical, right? It should match what we see in the New Testament. So I want to just share four marks of speaking in tongues as I understand it and see it in the Bible. The first mark of speaking in tongues is this. It is an unlearned, known language. Where did we get that from? Right here in Acts chapter 2. Now, sometimes people will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, there's, there's known human languages in, in Acts 2, but doesn't Paul talk about the tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1? And, and isn't he talking there in, in, in Corinth? Isn't speaking in tongues speaking angelic languages? I mean, isn't that what it teaches there? So we just slow, slow down for just a minute. Now let's just wait for a minute. Let's take a closer look at all of this. And I want to make two observations about this idea that somehow in 1 Corinthians 14, it's talking about speaking tongues, meaning the languages of angels. Two things I want to observe. Number one is this. In 1 Corinthians 13.1, Paul is using a figure of speech that we all use uh, called hyperbole. It's very important we understand that. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13.1. He says, if I speak in the languages of men and even the languages of angels, if I know all mysteries and if I know all knowledge and if I have all faith, to even move mountains, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing, zero at all. See how he's talking in hyperbolic terms here? If I could speak in any language you could even imagine, if if I knew all the mysteries of all the world, if I had all knowledge, if if I could have all faith, even enough faith to move a mountain, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So that's the first thing to understand. He's using hyperbole to make a point. 
that love is paramount. Second observation I want to make is this. In Acts chapter 2, we have something at work here called the law of first reference. The law of first reference. Very important law. You say, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, let's just take, I'll use this as an illustration. When I was growing up and I lived in Kansas City, we had a cat that I named Fang. In fact, the full name that Fang had that I gave to Fang was Fang the Wonder Cat. And you say, what makes Fang a wonder cat? Well, the reason why I call Fang Fang the Wonder Cat is that when I would whistle, think about cats, Fang would always come running right to me. When I would go, that kind of a whistle, no matter where Fang was, anywhere in the neighborhood, Fang would come immediately running to me. Now, if I tell you about Fang the Wonder Cat, and then sometimes later, I tell you another story about my cat, you would automatically assume, you would reasonably assume, I'm talking about the same cat, would you not? Unless I clarified differently that I was now discussing a different cat than Fang the Wonder Cat. That's the law of first reference. And the law of first reference is at work here. And we see very clearly what speaking in tongues is here. Does it change when it gets to the book of 1 Corinthians? I don't think so. You remember that Luke and Paul were close friends. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Luke writes Acts. They were ministry partners, and what is interesting is when they describe speaking in tongues as a phenomenon, they use the exact same vocabulary, the exact same terms. So therefore, we must conclude based on the law of first reference that unless Paul clarified differently in Corinth, tongues are something different than they were in Acts 2, then we must assume that it's the same phenomenon. It's a law of first reference. So the first mark in the Bible, I'm not making this stuff up, it's laid out for us here, is that speaking in tongues was an unlearned foreign language. Second mark, speaking in tongues was praising God for his mighty deeds. In other words, that's the actual content of the words that were coming out of their mouth. We haven't gotten there yet, but if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it says, we hear them in our own tongues, our own languages, speaking the mighty deeds of God. They were praising God for his mighty deeds. We have another occurrence There's only two other occurrences in the book of Acts in chapter 10, verse 46, and it says they were speaking with tongues and praising God, praising God for his mighty deeds. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, he who speaks in a tongue, in a language that you hadn't learned, speaks to God. So one of the marks of speaking in tongues is that it was praising God for his mighty deeds. Third mark, in my opinion, as we see this, is that speaking in tongues was a public manifestation, not a private blessing. It doesn't mean there wasn't a blessing in doing it, but it wasn't designed to be a private thing. What do we have here in Acts chapter 2? We have a bunch of people assembled around. 
In Acts chapter 10, which we've heard is another occurrence of it, you have people assembled. And sometimes people wait, they'll say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We understand what speaking in tongues was here, but we really do think it was something different in Corinth. I mean, wasn't it? And part of my answer to that is, what was speaking in tongues, as Paul describes it? He says, it is a spiritual gift. Do you know that no spiritual gift was ever designed to be just for someone's personal benefit? The whole nature of spiritual gifts is they are designed as he says in chapter 12 and verse 7, for the common good. That's the core reason why a gift exists. And so the design of speaking in tongues was for public manifestation, not private blessing. Fourth mark of speaking in tongues in the Bible, and I'm just taking it from the text of Scripture, is that speaking in tongues was a sign for unbelievers. This was the purpose of it. Its primary purpose was for unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14.22 tells us that tongues are for a sign for unbelievers. And contextually, I think, when you tie in uh, Acts with all of that, I think the unbelievers, contextually in the New Testament, were unbelieving Jews. Did you ever think about the fact that Peter and the disciples could have spoken in Aramaic and Hebrew or maybe Greek, when these events happened. But they don't. They're communicating in multiple languages. And here's what is interesting. If you go back and study your Old Testament, you'll find out that hearing foreign languages in Jerusalem was a sign of judgment from God. Acts, or rather Isaiah 28.11 talks about that. Jeremiah 5.15 talks about that. In other words, what they were taught in the Old Testament is when you hear foreign languages in Jerusalem, you ought to think judgment from God. And actually, that's part of what, when Peter gets to his very first sermon in the church, he's going to bring up the rejection of the Messiah by these Jews who are hearing these events happen. It's all going to be part of the first sermon. That's part of the lesson that they were to learn, is this is a sign that judgment is coming apart from you responding to the person of Christ. So all I'm saying in all this, I'm not down on anybody or anything, I'm just saying if we're going to practice speaking in tongues, whoever may want to choose to do that, it should be biblical, it should match the New Testament. And I will say one other thing, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, it gives clear regulations for the practice of speaking in tongues in the church. And so if we were going to do that, we would follow those regulations. So, so let's get back to the reactions. Let's go back again to the reactions, having taken that little detour. Uh, according to verse 12, as all of these things are happening, some are leaning in. They're curious. It says they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, and they were saying to one another, what does this mean? I mean, something's happening. God is giving us a message here. What is the message? We need to understand it. We're curious to know. But we also learn from verse 13 that some were leaning out. They were scoffing. It says verse 13, others were mocking and they were saying, these Galileans, they're just full of, of sweet wine. Sweet wine or new wine was highly intoxicating. And that leads us forth to Peter's clarification that we see in verses 14 to 21. 
Look at verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, and he declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, you Jewish folks, here, I want to talk to you for a moment. Let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Peter's basically saying, come on, guys. It's 9 a.m. The bars are not open this early. They're not drunk. But I will tell you what is happening. Verse 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he begins to quote Joel out of the Old Testament, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now, you may not be aware of it, but this raises an interpretive question, an interpretive issue of how are we to understand his quoting of these verses. This is just an interpretive question that people who study the Bible, people who teach the Bible, theologians have to wrestle with. And there's three general ways that people tend to look at this, and I just want you to be aware of them. The first way is this. Some would say that what happens in Acts 2 is an outright fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 to 32. It just outrightly fulfills everything that Joel said in those verses. Now, I have a little struggle with that viewpoint because what happens here in verses 19 and 20 out of Joel you know, wonders in the sky, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun being turned into darkness, moon into blood. Those events don't actually happen here. And what is really interesting, I mean, he could have just quoted from 17 and 18. But, but what's also interesting to me is the phenomenon of speaking in these unlearned foreign languages, of speaking in tongues, is not even mentioned in Joel. If you look at verses 17 and 18, that's not mentioned there. And if you go back to Joel chapter 2, you'll find out that Joel chapter 2 and verses, well, actually the whole context of Joel 2 and Joel 3 is talking about the events of the tribulation period in the future, the time of the day of the Lord, the time of the second coming of Christ. So if we're going to say that this is just an outright fulfillment, a complete fulfillment of what Joel prophesied, I think we have to explain away the context of Joel, and that I don't feel comfortable with. So how are we to understand this interpretive question? Well, there's a second way of understanding it, and it would say this, that what we see here in Acts 2 is an initial fulfillment of Joel 2. In other words, it's starting now in Acts 2, but it will culminate in the time around the second coming of Christ. And I want you to know that there are many fine Bible teachers and many fine theologians who would understand the fulfillment of this in that way. But I still feel a little uncomfortable with that one. It's interesting to me that Peter stops short of using the word fulfilled here. You go back a chapter in Acts 1, he's going to talk about some scripture passages and he's going to talk about how they were fulfilled in Christ. You go over to the next chapter in chapter 3, similar thing. He's going to actually use the word fulfilled about things related to Christ, how it fulfilled the Old Testament. He doesn't actually use that phrase here. 
If you go back and look at Joel 2, it's talking about a future event where there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it's related to the national repentance of Israel at the second coming of Christ, prophesied in multiple places in the Old Testament. So how, how do we best understand this? This is just my opinion. You don't have to buy this one, but there's a third way of looking at these verses, and that is that he uses these verses in an illustrative manner, an illustrative manner. Look at verse 16. He says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. You're standing here watching this happen, and you think it's alcoholic spirits, and I want to tell you it's not alcoholic spirits. It's the spirit. You people know the Old Testament, and you knew the prophet Joel, and Joel spoke of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I believe what Peter's saying is these are not the same events that Joel spoke about, but this is the same effect that Joel spoke about. And I, I personally think that's part of the reason why he overquotes this section. I mean, why does he throw in verses 19 and 20? Well, if you want to avoid anybody's misunderstanding that you're claiming that this fulfilled Joel 2, you can overquote the section because they know those two verses didn't happen. I think another reason why he overquotes it is he really wanted to get to the verse 21 because it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that's going to be the message that we have coming up in the second part of the chapter. We'll see that next week as we look at the church's first sermon. But men and women, the day of Pentecost was an amazing day. And we still got more to come as we finish up the chapter. It was the planting day. It was the church's birthday. It was the beginning of the church. It's the kickoff. It's the blast off. It's the unveiling. It's the inauguration. It's the debut. It's the inception of the promise fulfilled. Despite, if I could say it, your track record and mine. Despite our less than impressive resumes that we have. Christ, just get your arms around this for a moment. Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit, came to indwell me permanently. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, came to indwell permanently everyone who would believe in him. And that, to me, is downright astonishing. It's astonishing. That God resides inside of me? That God resides inside of us and he promises to never leave us? It's downright astonishing. The same power that walked Jesus out of the grave is inside of me and inside of you if you know him. Do you realize, men and women, that as members of his body, the church, we have spiritual privileges that Abraham did not have, that David did not have? 
just astonishing to me. And as we live in dependence upon the Spirit of God, He promises to lead us. He promises to guide us. He promises to empower us. And oh, watch this one. He promises to transform us from the inside out. Wow. I mean, wow. That is amazing. It is a mighty God that we serve. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and we're going to close in a song. But as they're coming, I just want to pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to view the promise being fulfilled here in Acts 2. It's an astonishing thing. And it's something we should really never get over the fact that somehow, I don't understand it, that you have come as the God of the universe to take up residence inside of my soul. And that you're there to lead us and to guide us and to empower us and to transform us. So often we can go through life with our chin on the ground And we need to let our chin come up and realize, oh my goodness. Jesus Christ, through the person of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, lives in me. What a great joy it is to go back to our roots and look at these passages and to be reminded of the great promise that was first fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And Father, we know we need to learn more about it. The role of the Holy Spirit is so utterly vital. May we live for your glory this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.